0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them.
1: Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. We reported this past week on some bad news from Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in California. It turns out that hundreds of threatened California red-legged frogs were killed by the Woolsey fire that swept across the NRA last fall. More bad news came from just outside Glacier National Park, where three grizzlies, a sow and two cubs, were killed by passing trains. On a positive side, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation is kicking off a multi-year and multi-million dollar initiative to improve three access points to the Snake River in the park. And at Chickasaw National Recreation Area in Oklahoma, three bison calves were added to the small herd there. We often learn the most when we're having so much fun we don't actually realize we're being educated. That's what makes places such as the North Cascades Institute, Nature Bridge, the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont, the Grand Canyon Field Institute, and other field schools that operate in national park settings so important. These nonprofit organizations offer programs that last anywhere from a day or two to a week or two, or even more, and in some of the grandest natural settings in the world. Today we're visiting with Saul Weisberg, co-founder of North Cascades Institute, about the value and successes of these programs. We also take a look at progress being made at Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument in Maine. I'll be back in a moment with Saul. Climate change, glaciology, sustainability, these are not the subjects that normally leap to mind when you consider sending your kids to summer camp. But blend them with backpacking, canoeing, or even a walk in the woods, and the result is a generation with not only a better connection with nature, but also perhaps a career path. Using National Park settings as a backdrop for these programs can serve double duty. The resources are the perfect educational tool, and the settings can really connect youth to nature. These settings seem to resonate with students, teachers, and adults' innate thirst for nature. Saul Weisberg, who helped found the North Cascades Institute in 1986, has seen students from every walk of life positively affected by their experiences in North Cascades National Park and other public lands that the Institute uses as outdoor classrooms. Today, the Institute offers programs that range from youth leadership to mountain school, an environmental education program that takes kids into the national parks to study glaciers, geology, and climate change, as well as the cultural history of the region. Saul joins us today to talk about the benefits of these outdoor programs. Welcome, Saul. It's great to be here. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Now, you know, we've talked uh, over the years about your programs there and, and the benefits. Have you seen uh, an increase in enrollments over the years? Are more kids and adults, young adults and uh, college students interested in learning more in a natural setting, so to speak?
2: We've seen a, a really steady growth in youth programs, both in numbers of kids and also the diversity of the kids that are coming and a wider range of schools that are participating. And interestingly, we've also seen a at the same time, perhaps a, a Gradual decrease in adult programs, uh, not just not just at the institute, but across the country.
1: Any idea why?
2: I think that uh, well, a couple ideas. One is that um, teachers and school districts have really jumped on the bandwagon of the value of getting kids outside, both for education and learning, but also just for working in groups. Uh, connecting with each other, connecting and, and learning and sharing together in the outside is really different from being inside a classroom back at their school. And I think for adults, it's, it's uh, the challenges of finding time to devote to yourself for a lot of people. Uh, you know, Less time to go out and look at birds in a national park, maybe a little more time to take the family to the mall. Uh, I hate to say it, but I, I see more and more of that happening.
1: Do you think it uh, could be tied also to uh, aging baby boomers? I mean, um, I'm one, and I grew up with uh, without cell phones and without uh, Xboxes, and uh, I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, and I, you know, that's how I got into nature, and that's what we did as kids growing up. We we went outdoors.
2: Yeah, I think for a lot of us, you know, our parents pushed us out the door and said, "Come back for dinner."
1: Yeah, they thought nothing of us running around the
2: neighborhood or in the local. Uh, creek or ravine and it, it felt safe. I, I, don't, I don't think it's any more dangerous now than it was, but certainly the dangers are, are hyped all the time in the media. I also do think that there's a lot of young parents who don't know all the answers when they go outside. And I think they, they are nervous to take their kids out because they don't really know what to do with them. So they, they probably do send them to camp more often or, um, or just need some encouragement to to get the whole family out into a park, and maybe a programs like ours and others are the way to begin.
1: Yeah, you know, it wasn't uh, too terribly many years ago when Richard Louv came out with his book, uh, Nature Deficit Disorder. Um, any gut feeling on on whether we're overcoming that in our society, or, or as you just mentioned, you know, there, there's still that hesitancy to to go outdoors, whether they folks don't know how to survive in the outdoors or, or know what to do because they, they have been so ingrained on television and devices.
2: I've, I think Rich, Rich Lou's book, God, that first one, Last Child in the Woods, hit it right on the head. He followed up with one called The Nature Principle, which was sort of about nature deficit disorder for adults. And he's got a new one coming out um, this, I think it's this coming fall. So I do think that we're seeing a lot more organizations and kids trying to get kids outside. Mm-hmm. That's primarily recreational, some of it's education, some of it's focusing on mindfulness and, and awareness. So I think it's touching a lot of things. And I think probably one of the fastest growing areas is focusing on, especially with kids, um, the health and wellness values of being outside, whether it's combating obesity or ADHD or other things, I think, I think there's a lot of awareness now, a lot more research happening, but also a lot more awareness that it just makes sense to get kids outside. And, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of kids who don't excel in a classroom environment, they just shine when outside and it's a different type of learning.
1: Now you're based, of course, in, in Washington state. And I imagine you draw a large uh, enrollment from the Seattle area, but uh, you also pull from schools across the country, don't you? Most, I would say,
2: most the large number of our schools are within Washington State, primarily west side of the state. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a few that come from farther, but um, you know, we really try to focus on schools that can come and then come back again, uh, where kids who come with their school to North Cascades National Park can come back and bring their families, and so I and I think that's kind of the. I don't know if that's a, a larger trend. I think just because of the economics of traveling and, and getting to places, most organizations like ours probably serve the, the region, maybe the state or, or, or the local region rather than nationally. But I do know that programs, uh, some programs do fly great distances to get to, pro, to, get to uh, national parks. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good thing if they can afford it.
1: Yeah. Now you mentioned an interesting, um, point there that, uh, you get the youth come out to your programs and then they come back with their families later. Is that what we're seeing is, is kids are getting hooked on the outdoors and introducing their parents to them at times? Yeah. You know, our mission is
2: to inspire and, and empower environmental stewardship for all through, through these transformative experiences in nature. And, uh, it's pretty easy to inspire kids. You just have to get them out there. I think adults are a little more resistant, but they'll do things with and for their kids that I think we've all seen that we never would have dreamed doing before, before we had kids mm-hmm. and, um, and family programs. We offer a lot of family getaways that are sort of like, well, essentially summer camps for the whole family where the kids get to do things, parents get to do things. They also get to do things together. And those kind of shared experiences are really, really powerful.
1: With your youth programs, um, are there any particular subjects that are most sought out by, by teachers in school districts? I think that teachers in schools
2: are often talking a lot about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math as subjects that they need to do work on. And a lot of, our, a lot of us are really you know, making sure that our programs really meet the next generation science standards. And that's really important. I'm really interested in the addition of what's called STEAM, adding art to that mix, or in the case of the Institute, art and humanities, because I think kids fall in love with the experience of being outside, of being in, you know, big mountains and alongside powerful rivers and and wildflower meadows. But the way a lot of kids respond to that is through art and music and dancing around and being silly. And the science comes a little bit later. So I think the blending of all those different ways of learning is is really important.
1: We've been talking with uh, Saul Weisberg. He helped found the North Cascades Institute back in 1986. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grants donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit YosemiteConservancy.org to find more inspiration.
1: Okay, we're back now with Saul Weisberg, who helped found the North Cascades Institute in Washington State in 1986, talking about the the benefits of nature and getting kids and uh, young adults and even even boomers out into the outdoors and uh, experiencing nature firsthand. And you do have... uh, um, Elevated courses, if you will, for for college students, don't you? Yeah, we have a graduate program
2: that's a partnership with Western Washington University. We do. A, we have a lot of adult programs on every you know all kinds of natural history topics: birds, butterflies, geology, uh, climate, glaciers, and then also the, the flip side of that, you know, writing, photography, uh, watercolor painting. We don't get a lot of college students in those seminars. I think you know it's. Um, it's a demographic where time and money are lacking. So we really try to make sure we have scholarships available. Uh, but I do think there's a gap between, well, I don't know if there's a gap. We really try to have a sort of a, a pathway for folks to get introduced to the outdoors and national parks. And then whether it's a third grade program, uh, fifth grade our mountain school program, things for high school students in the summer, Uh, And then things that you can touch all throughout your life. That seems to have the most impact, you know, multiple experiences when the outside or the park becomes a place that's comfortable, it's known, it's familiar terrain, not just this, you know, bang of really exciting, you know, but exciting, but one-off experience it's the multiple experiences that really ground people, kids in particular, and then they get more comfortable. And so, you know, the first time they go canoeing, that might be pretty scary. The fourth or fifth time, they're comfortable and they're learning to look around and see what else is out there.
1: Do you track your students, so to speak, to, to um, get a sense for how many are, are so hooked by nature that they, they follow a career path, whether it's with the Park Service or the U.S. Forest Service or just some out, outside endeavor?
2: We track our our the older, older kids and adults quite a bit. It, you can't really track, you can't get the, the uh, contact information from young kids without talking to all the parents individually. So we can, we can follow up with the teachers and see what they notice. And we followed up with many teachers over many years. And what's interesting is that the, more, the longer teachers bring their kids to these kinds of programs, the more that teachers also do programs on their own that gets, get kids outside. And the more teachers do professional development that help them teach more outside, whether it's natural history or, you know, just how to do more field trips. So I think that's really clear. With high school students, we stay in touch with them because they're all on Facebook and they, they friend us and they follow the Institute. And so we really do have an idea of what they do and what, when they go to college, what they're studying. And sort of their career paths. So, a um, lot of information, a lot of really good anecdotal stories, and a certain number of statistics and things that we can
1: also track. And do you have a feel for for how many go into the that type of career? Yeah, it's difficult. I think the ones that we hear from are
2: the ones who are doing that because they're the ones that have stayed the most in touch. Uh-huh. You know, we know kids that have um, did a summer youth leadership program when they were in high school. And we know that uh, two of them from Guaymas Island have uh, gone on and they're Huxley College majors and one's going into um, environmental policy and the other one was going into water resources. So, you know, pretty good small samples, but pretty good response there. We also run into, I ran into a, I won't say a kid, I ran into a young man at a foundation meeting And he came over and introduced himself. We'd gotten a grant and he'd gotten a grant at that. And um, he said, you know, you're the guys that do mountain school. And he told me a story of when he was a fifth grader, uh, newly emigrated to the U.S. from Mexico. And soon after he got here, his class came to mountain school. And he said he has a picture of him and his buddies holding holding arms, hands around a big cedar tree out in the woods in North Cascades National Park. Mm-hmm. I asked him, well, where's, the, where's your desk? And he said he's a career counselor or a school counselor at Whatcom Middle School here in Bellingham. So you do get those stories. You know, we didn't follow up on him. He sort of found us.
1: Yeah, very nice. Now, the base camp, so to speak, of the institute is the uh, North Cascades Environmental Learning Center. And uh, that, that's quite a complex you've got there.
2: Yeah, it's a wonderful partnership with uh, National Park Service and Seattle City Light, because the, the, a lot of the funding for that came out of the mitigation, the required mitigation that the city had to do for their three dams on the Skagit River. But it's really been a amazing, I'm not sure what you'd call it, window or doorway into the park for tens of thousands of kids of all ages and adults, because it's it's you know when we started everything was field based uh, mostly intense and that brought a lot of people you know we were we were pretty much full from day 1 back in 86 with those programs but they were only appealing to people who had the ability or the interest or the gear to go camping mm-hmm. and go hiking and with the learning center you know it's a comfortable beautiful facility with classrooms and and uh, labs and library but it's right in the heart of the North Cascades on Diablo Lake. And so it attracts people. For, it really does attract people from all over the country, certainly in the summer for adult programs, who use that as a base. you know, Base camp's the right word to learn more, but then go out and, and really learn on their own. And I think that's really the, the uh, goal there. And we see that a lot of the people who come to those programs, those programs and are also our conference and retreats that we do at the Learning Center, it's really, their, some, for many of them, it's their first time in a national park. And sort of, we just feel like we can be ambassadors, great ambassadors for the park service that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that outdoor classroom is just, just phenomenal from the lakes up to the glaciers. Do you see with um, climate change, you know, we, we're seeing more wildfires, um, more vigorous storms back east, um, flooding in the Midwest. Is there, is there more interest in, in that type of programming to, to better understand what's going on? Yes, yes and no. Um, there's
2: a lot of interest in climate as there needs to be. And we see the schools often wanting, I mean, climate change is part of our curriculum. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's different. It, it takes different forms with high school kids and with third graders, fifth graders. But um, it's something that we address in almost everything we do. Uh, and, and, and in different ways, and in the North Cascades, which have you know more glaciers in in this park than any other park in the lower 48, you can see. I mean, we had we the Park Service has really documented the, the shrinking of the glaciers, and you can look across the lake and see glaciers and snowfields, and compare photographs from even 10 years ago and see how much difference there is. I also see among some people, it's sort of like. We came to the parks to, to have a vacation and to relax. And there's kind of a little bit of a pushback against, we don't want to hear about the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And the increasing wildflowers, I mean, the last couple of summers, you know, it was smoky all over this state with fires burning in, in the state, coming, being blown up from, from Oregon and, and down from BC. So it's interesting because, you know, we want people to understand what's going on but we don't want, we want to inspire them to to get active and get engaged in these issues and become advocates for uh, climate adaptation and and you know trying to see what we can do about it, but at the same time we don't want to scare them away from you know it's, we don't want to co- we don't want to cause despair Yeah. And so it's this kind of interesting balance and i think we're we're all in the environmental movement we're all struggling with how do you how do you advocate for conservation in the strongest possible terms without helping people, without getting people just overwhelmed with how much there is to do? And that's certainly the case now with the, you know, I'll just say the, the tax we're seeing on public lands and parks. It's just, a, it's just a really challenging line to walk for, I think, for all of us and more necessary than ever.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting what's going on. Do, do your programs lend to tracking long-term trends in the park in terms of natural resources?
2: We do a fair bit of citizen science. Um, our, our students, graduate students in particular, have been doing phenology around the Learning Center and on some property we have at the confluence of Diabson Creek and the Skagit River. So looking at, you know, uh, Oh, when things, you know, when things bloom, when the bees show up, when uh, different birds, you know, the birds show up. And the Park Service has been doing a really great job at North Cascade. Certainly their, their glaciology work is, and climate work here is is fantastic. John Riedel, the park's glaciologist, is, has been doing this for a long time. And is, they've got a really strong program there. But I, it's hard to get the I mean, the data certainly goes out to the scientific community and we use that data and that information a lot in our programming, but there's, there's so much more you can do to, to get kids and and young people involved in that. And it's a challenge just because, you know, managing large groups of volunteers is is hard for the park service because they just don't have the staff to do their own work and, and run these other programs. They tend to be one-offs, you know, every few years more than, you know, kind of a consistent program. Curious question
1: why why at North Cascades National Park and not at say Olympic or Rainier
2: I think like everything else uh, where ideas take root and thrive is based on relationships with people sort of right place right time. when we started the institute in 1986 John Reynolds was a new superintendent he came and he saw some uh, some uh, proposals that I had written to a former uh, previous superintendent who just really wasn't very interested. He said, whatever happened to this idea? And I said, well, it just didn't seem to go anywhere. And he said, and John Reynolds just was like, he jumped on it. We need to make this happen. And then in a, within a year or two, he, he'd hired John Jarvis as chief of natural resources and Bill Leitner as the uh, chief of interpretation. And they both went on obviously to great careers in the park service Mm-hmm and the three of them just were incredible supporters. I mean, we talked, you know, every day and sometimes about what about this? Hey, can we do this? And they weren't just focused on the park. They were saying, this is a park surrounded by national forest land and on the border with Canada. We need to be talking about the changes in the ecosystem. And that really got us going. And then, you know, just different things at different times. Uh, and it is, it's just kind of right. Right people, right place, right time. And that's not just with the park staff, because we've had, you know many, many park staff really get engaged, but it's forest supervisors, donors, artists, you know just kind of the right connection, and then more connections happen. So it's kind of the synergy that you want to have in any kind of entrepreneurial venture. And what we have and our, our peers who also have residential learning centers and parks across the country. We have this incredible base in the natural world that's called a national park, and you can't get any better than that.
1: No, you can't. That's uh, that's for sure, and it is quite an incredible park, North Cascades. We've been talking today with uh, Saul Weisberg, who helped found the North Cascades Institute back in 1986. Saul, I, I certainly appreciate your time. We could go on much longer, but uh, every time we gotta limit ourselves. We would encourage folks who are interested in learning more about North Cascades Institute to to visit their website. It's ncascades.org. Again, the letter ncascades.org. Saul, once again, thank you so much for your time today. It's a
2: pleasure. Always fun to talk about my favorite place.
1: All right.
0: RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy to tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly, or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park To make a real and lasting difference for Acadia, you can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official non-profit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
3: Hello National Park Traveler listeners, I'm Erica Zambello and today I'm speaking with Deputy Director of Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters, Sam Deeren. Now Katahdin Woods and Waters is very close to my heart because I am a native Mainer. It's one of our newest national monuments coming into the system in 2016 and I can say from personal experience it is a beautiful spot to check out the Maine Northwoods. And so, Sam, I wanted to ask you, are you from Maine originally? You know, how did you become interested in national parks in general?
4: Yeah, and Erica, thank you so much for having me on the show, and, and hello to all your listeners. Um, I am from Maine originally. I grew up in a town called Falmouth, which is just north of Portland, Maine, and I spent a lot of my summers uh and to this day, I spend my summers uh, when I can up in Sandy River Plantation, Maine, which is a little bit further down the Appalachian Trail from uh, the northern terminus, Katahdin, uh, near Saddleback Mountain. So I have, uh, you know, I have an old deep connection to uh, some of the North Maine woods out in Western Maine. I got interested in national parks, I'd say, uh, as a young child. First, uh, you know, I think strong emotions come through our stomachs sometimes, and I, I, uh, Developed quite the attachment to Acadia National Park when I went there with my dad as uh, as a toddler and and got to taste and uh, and smell the delicious popovers at the Jordan Pond House there in Acadia.
3: Yep, those are um, amazing.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's there's something to remember. And um, as an adult, I think my connection to, to national parks deepened a little bit more and broadened um, when I got to visit the Everglades National Park in uh, in college. I went on a road trip down through Florida and visited. The Everglades, which were really quite foreign to me, uh, but we got to know them in quite an immersive way when we went out canoeing to do an overnight at one of the chicky uh, tent sites and uh, paddled through the mangroves and the entire time sort of um, were a flutter with, with some fears about uh, rumored pythons that were in the Everglades and um, you know, had our eye out for alligators and things. And it was really just an incredible experience. And um Really sold to me the value of our national park system outside of my my native home of Maine. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful experience and something that uh, really broadened my perspective on on the uh, incredible natural landscapes we have here in the United States.
3: Yeah, and I do want to note that uh, we were actually probably uh, town neighbors as kids. I grew up in Cumberland, Maine. So oh, wow. our, uh, our high schools were rival high schools, but I won't hold it against right. you in this interview. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad we can move on from that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and so how long have you worked with uh, Friends of Woods and Waters?
4: So I've worked with uh, the Friends group here for just over a year, um, and it's been uh, probably the fullest uh, year in my professional life, but a really rewarding experience so far.
3: So I want to back up a moment. So I actually first visited Katahdin Woods and Waters in 2015, which, um, as you know, it was privately owned at that time. It was open to the public, but privately owned. And then 2016 rolls in and a lot of changes happen really fast. So can you just provide our listeners some context? You know, how did Woods and Waters come to be and what's really unique about this national monument?
0: Sure. so
4: um, I was very familiar uh, as well with some of the more modern narrative around how this became a national monument being here in Maine. I read many of the headlines around some of the the, uh, the conflict and compromise that was going on here in the Maine North Woods around uh, its designation um, so in the late 2010 or excuse me mid 2010s. Um, but since I've gotten into this work I've really realized how this this story of, uh, of conserving these lands goes way way back. So, you know, you had Henry David Thoreau visit the lands in 1857, and, and uh, Thoreau was a proponent of preserving lands. And then uh, in 1879, you had a college kid by the name of Teddy Roosevelt who visited these lands and summited Katahdin in a pair of moccasins after losing uh, one of his boots in the Wasatikuk Extreme, which is, you know, land that's now in the National Monument. And, uh, you know, notable visitors like Thoreau and Teddy Roosevelt were inspired to protect these lands. And it was actually Roosevelt himself who, in 1906, signed the Antiquities Act, which established uh, the president's authority to proclaim national monuments like Katahdin Woods and Waters. And, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a new idea to have uh, a national park up in this area. Um, there was a congressman from Maine who, in 1916, introduced a bill for Katahdin National Park. And in 1937, there was a similar bill introduced by a congressman from Maine. And then, of course, we have the incredible legacy of Baxter State Park up here in the North Maine woods. Um so, uh, you know, that's a, an adjacent park to Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And uh, the first donation of land for that park made by uh, Maine Governor Percival Baxter was made in 1931. So there's, a, there's the long history of, of a conservation effort up here. And then there's more recent history. So um, with the logging industry in decline in the North Maine woods, you had Roxanne Quimby, who had made uh, a fortune in, uh, in her work uh, with Burt's Bees Personal Care Products, and she wanted to put that money to good use. She said herself, um, I can think of no better thing to do with Burt's Bees profits than to return them to the earth. So in the early 2000s, she, she started buying parcels of lands in the, the North Main Woods with a, with a grand vision of building uh, a national park up here. There was some pretty vocal local opposition, and uh, she eventually turned the effort over to her son, Lucas St. Clair, which uh, proved to be a good move because Lucas had a really good time getting along with folks up in the region, and uh, he's uh, he's an avid outdoorsman himself and can really relate to people on a person-to-person level around the recreational opportunities up here. And Lucas pushed uh, pushed. Uh, hard for the park to be designated, and uh, had a lot of meetings. He he said it himself. He had ten thousand cups of coffee with folks sitting face to face to discuss the park, and it was eventually designated as a national monument on August twenty fourth, two thousand sixteen. So that's sort of the long story of the history, and uh, as to what makes this place unique, uh, you know, I think it really starts with the natural natural resource. So um, you know, if we start at the ground level. Uh, in the geology of the region, you know, there's some really unique stuff going on there. This this monument has evidence of, of earth-changing events like the tectonic plates moving, the rise of the Appalachian Mountains, and, and the retreat of the glaciers 12,000 years ago. And then there's the waterways through the monument. There's three rivers. They're really my my favorite personal favorite uh, feature in the monument. There's uh, The biggest river is the east branch of the Penobscot River, which in 1977 was pre-qualified as a wild and scenic river. And then feeding into the East Branch, you have the Saboas River and the Wasatch Stream. And I think one thing that's uh, special about this national monument is that it is uh, adding to acreage uh, totaling of about five hundred thousand acres of uh, adjacent conservation lands. Which you know our our um, our woodland friends don't necessarily look at borders the same way we do on a map. So when you have a conservation patchwork that big you're doing something incredible in protecting rare and iconic main species like moose, bald eagle, brook trout, and the uh, the federally threatened Canada lynx. So that's, uh, that's sort of the natural resource that we're protecting, but there's also a rich cultural history here. I've told you about how uh, Henry David Thoreau visited the land, Teddy Roosevelt uh, visited the land. Uh, from the Hudson School of Painters, there was Frederick Edwin Church who made frequent trips up here to to paint some of the incredible landscapes, and then going back 11,000 years ago, uh, the Penobscot uh, Indians have and other tribes around Maine have called this place home for many, many years. And there's uh, there's so many stories to tell there. And then there's a there's a rich history of logging in this area. Um, there was a time where Bangor, Maine, which uh, which is along the Penobscot River, um, had the highest output of uh, of lumber board in the entire world, and uh, it was logs from this region that fell, fed those mills. So a rich cultural history, and much to protect in, in the woods and waters up here.
3: Yeah, Katahdin Woods and Waters is interesting. Um, you know, all states have a different contexts and go about preserving land in different ways, but Maine really has a history of wealthy individuals falling in love with the landscape and purchasing property to be conserved for future generations. You know, that's, that's a big part of how Acadia National Park came to be, and now it's um, happening again at Woods and Waters. So it's really an interesting history that you brought up of just conservation in the state in general.
4: Absolutely, I think we here in Maine are, are very fortunate to have had the support uh, and, um, and vision of, of, of donors like Roxanne Quimby and the Quimby family and you know the Rockefellers and the Doors down at Acadia and the Baxter family at Baxter State Park. It's, it's really created um, an incredible conservation ethic here in Maine.
3: So you brought us up to 2016, um, when the park was designated by by President Obama. And so when did the Friends Group form?
4: So the Friends Group formed about six months later, uh, uh, in early 2017. It started with a a 13-person board of directors, and it was uh, an an incredible, and is to this day, an incredible group of folks from the uh, conservation movement. And uh, local business leaders who who came together to incorporate our nonprofit to provide a margin of excellence beyond what the what the National Park Service can provide.
3: Are you guys still connected to to the Quimby family? Are they on your board, or is this sort of a totally separate endeavor from the establishment of the of the park?
4: Um, I we we don't currently have uh, any member of the Quimby family on our board of directors. Although um, Lucas St Clair uh, serves on one of our committees but I think our, our relationship is still very much uh, active with the, the family and their, and their foundations. And uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, some of their support in setting up our friends group. Um, they have really stewarded this gift um, in a pretty special way. It wasn't just the gift of land. There's uh, there was also um, funds committed to an endowment at the National Park Foundation to help uh, support early operations of the park, and then there were funds that were that were uh, sent to the Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters to to help seed our operations for years to come. Um, I think they they uh, rightly recognize that park partnerships are a really vital part of uh, of supporting our national park system, and so they've done an incredible job of 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 stewarding our friends group to be here to help preserve and protect uh, the monument and the surrounding communities for, for generations to come.
3: Yeah, that's really great. And so you set up the friends group about six months after the national monument was set up and, you know, I'm sure you guys went through an extensive planning phase. So what are the priorities for the new park as it approaches its, um, five year anniversary in a few years?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right to say we, we undertook, um, we undertook a strategic planning process pretty early on, uh, and to meet the needs and the identified work in the strategic plan, we've grown very quickly. So, we started with 13-person board of directors. We're now at 17 uh, folks on our board. We have four full-time staff and uh, three fellows helping us out this summer. And the priorities, as far as program work that were set up in our strategic plan, are uh, are, are threefold. There's the uh, our, our goal to improve accessible visitor information and experience, to help the National Park Service with monument development and access. And then uh, the third program area uh, that we focus on in our strategic plan is Katahdin region revitalization. I think there's uh, a real recognition that we need to be a part of uh, helping to stand up the gateway communities of the monuments so that they can be a part of a bright future up here in the uh, Katahdin region.
3: And I think you bring up a good point. So you know, as someone from Maine, I am very personally aware of how, you know, changing macro economy issues are affecting local communities in Maine. And so one of the things that's very much affected the Katahdin region is changing in logging and changing in where, you know, lumber is processed and mills and having mills shut down. And so where does the new monument kind of fit into that Larger context in Maine.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, it's a great thing to bring up. And you know, the the Katahdin region, in, in many ways, is uh, is struggling given the demise of the the logging industry. You know, the the mill industry, in part because of you know plummeting demand for paper products, it, it had a sort of a slow wind down, and um, and the the region has suffered because of that. By the time the last mill shut its doors in Millinocket in two thousand eight. Uh, the region's population was nearly half what it was in 1970, and since then, a, the unemployment rate has been about double the state of Maine. So, we really feel that there's a there's a huge opportunity um, for uh, the region to capitalize on um, some of the some of the opportunities provided by the national monument. You know, the National Park Service brand really brings people from all over the world to to this neck of the woods. So. You know, uh, when Lucas St. Clair was advocating for the monument before its designation, he commissioned a study to show that the park being here would add uh, about 500 to 1,000 new jobs. And we're seeing how we can help the region um, realize, uh, you know, that, that that new opportunity by, um, you know, figuring out uh, how do we set up a recreation economy here in the Katahdin region so that, uh, you know, folks that are from the region can really be the ones to benefit from uh, increased visitation. So, you know, that comes down to setting up good accommodations and having great guide services and uh, uh, places for people to orient themselves as they come through gateway communities like Millinocket in the South and, and Patton in the North.
3: So you, you touched on this slightly, but the national park system is incredibly diverse. I mean, you have parks that came into the system a hundred years ago, and then you have parks like Katahdin Woods and Waters, that are that are only a few years old. So obviously, a park that you know is decades or over a hundred years old has different opportunities and challenges compared to a brand new site. So I was wondering, what do you face on a daily basis at your job that might differ from other friends groups across the United States that are supporting older parks?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's something we think about all the time. Um, I think, in the most immediate sense, day to day, we we have to deal with folks' expectations about visiting National Park Service units. Um, it was just the other day a colleague and I were driving um, to Bar Harbor and uh, drove through Acadia National Park a bit, and it was clear as day where we were going, and um, signage was there, and you know, even without a map, we could probably orient ourselves and have a good time. But the same might not be true for folks that visit the national monument. So you know, when the land was designated a uh, unit of the National Park Service on August 24th, 2016, it's not like all of a sudden, um, you know, four Visitor kiosks popped up, and facilities. all the
3: restrooms suddenly came into being.
4: <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you know, there. Uh, I think we have the benefit of, in some ways, of it being old logging land, in that that there's some good roads that are established that can easily be converted into trails, and you have many people, you know, traveling those paths already on mountain bikes, skis, on foot. So you know there there is some basic infrastructure there, but it's you know nothing substitutes when somebody's visiting for having a one-on-one conversation with them about what their itinerary is and uh, what they hope to get out of the experience. And I just don't think that's quite true for other National Park Service units where somebody may just be able to sort of self-guide through with something they found on the internet. I think there are folks that could do that with the monument, but I really think somebody's experience is going to be um, is really going to be improved by having a chat with somebody who's been there already. So. You know, um, that takes a good amount of work and it's really fun work to do. Just last week, I I spoke to one of our members on the phone about uh, paddling the three rivers of the monument, which is really, uh, for my money, uh, one of the premier experiences to have in the monument. And uh, we talked for 45 minutes and it was just an absolute delight to talk to him about his uh, prior uh, canoeing experiences and, and some fun trips that he could take in the monument.
3: Yeah, one of the the best parts about working for a small nonprofit, which I know from experience is being able to have those one-on-one connections and, and you can be kind of a virtual guide for people interested in visiting Katahdin Woods and Waters.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I highly encourage folks to, uh, to check out visitation resources we have on our website, www.friendsofkww.org. Uh, There's some trip planning help on there. And then uh, you can also find my contact information on there. And I encourage anybody to reach out anytime if they're planning a trip to the monument.
3: Great. So I'm about to ask the most difficult question. And that's just simply what if you had to choose one thing, what is your favorite part of the park?
4: Um, I think if I had to choose one thing that was my favorite part of the park, it would probably be the rivers. So there's a lot of different ways to experience the rivers. So I, I kind of uh, cheated on my answer there. But um, the many different vantages you can get of the rivers really have inspired me uh, day in and day out to, to uh, continue this work. And um, whether it's skiing up alongside the East Branch, the Penobscot River in the winter, or the incredible view from from uh, the lookout that looks down through the three river valleys, or um, you know paddling down the East Branch of the Penobscot River. It's uh, it's really a truly beautiful uh, way to see the sweeping landscape up north here.
3: So the park is open all four seasons, correct?
4: That's right. Yeah.
3: So when is a good time for people to come check out Woods and Waters for the first time? And I'm thinking a little bit less about. Perhaps you know die-hard national park fans like myself and yourself who would be happy if it was negative ten degrees. And I'm thinking, you know, um, visitors with families or or visitors maybe even coming to Maine for the first time. You know, when should they they come check out Woods and Waters?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a little bit of uh, weary of letting this this uh, secret out, but I think uh, I I think of September as sort of a second summer in Maine and a summer that has. Um, some real advantages. Uh, If you come towards the latter half of September, you might still have some warmer temperatures where it's like nice and chilly at night and the leaves may be starting to turn. So there's incredible leaf peeping to do in September. The bugs are also still around, but they're much less than they'd be earlier in the season. And there's still most of the incredible recreational opportunities available in September. So you could paddle, you could hike, you could stargaze uh, beneath some of the darkest skies east of the Mississippi River. Um, There's an incredible diversity of recreational opportunities up here. And uh, there's still a lot of them available during a really beautiful time in September.
3: Awesome. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, Check out Katahdin Woods and Waters in September so I just want to thank you for speaking with me I've been speaking with Sam Deeren, deputy director of Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters and I can tell you that I can't wait to to get back up there for my first visit since it has become an official national monument
1: great
4: well thanks so much for having me Erica and uh, I hope when you uh, make it up this way you give us a call
3: I definitely will this is Erica Zambello from northwest Florida signing out
0: The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the Lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com.
1: If you take pride in your private National Park library, you'll want to be sure that the Rocky Mountain National Park Reader is among the titles on your shelves. Through its nearly 280 pages, James H. Pickering has masterfully assembled narratives crafted from those who homesteaded the land within today's park from naturalists such as Ann Zwinger, Stephen Trimble, Sue Ellen Campbell, and even from mountain climbers. There are other readers on Grand Canyon National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and the Pacific Crest Trail, for example, but this title has a preponderance of late 19th century, not 20th century, articles in it. Released by the University of Utah Press, this book is particularly rich and entertaining one that helps us understand how this rugged landscape was viewed, used, and appreciated before it became a national park in 1915. Pickering includes narratives from the likes of Louis W. Kleppinger, who was in a party led by Major John Wesley Powell that was credited as the first to summit Long's Peak. There's another entry by the Earl of Dunraven, who arrived in the 1870s and built an 8,000-acre estate in what is now Estes Park. There's also a piece from Isabella Lucy Bird, an Englishwoman who summited Long's Peak in 1873. A travel writer of high regard at the time, Ms. Bird published a collection of other letters from Estes Park and the surrounding mountains in 1879. He laid his life in the Rocky Mountains, which brought fame to the region. As I intend to make Estes Park my headquarters until the winter sets in, I must make you acquainted with my surroundings and mode of living, she wrote. The Queen Anne Mansion is represented by a log cabin made of big hewn logs, The chinks should be filled with mud and lime, but these are wanting. The roof is formed of barked young spruce, then a layer of hay and an outer coating of mud, all nearly flat. The floors are rough-boarded. The living room is about 16 feet square and has a rough stone chimney in which pine logs are always burning. Now, not all the entries are so dated. A much more recent piece by Ms. Campbell explores the extraordinary biology of the white-tailed ptarmigan that eke out a living on the tundra near the roof of the park. This bird knew just how to behave in winter, along with the tundra's other survivors, plants and animals both. She also had the right body. Like the weasel's white fur, her winter feathers would work as both camouflage and heat collectors. On chilly days, she could find a patch of sunshine, fluff herself out, and let the rays of the sun penetrate the hollow shafts and reach her skin, Campbell tells us. The feathers covering her body were double, too, each carrying a second downy branch called an aftershaft for extra insulation. In short, she was feathered all over. Feathered nostrils would keep the snow and ice from impeding her breathing. Feathered eyelids would do the same for her vision. This reader is a must for National Park lovers, especially those attached to Rocky Mountain. It will give hours of entertainment. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can send comments and suggestions for future episodes to news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And to catch up on the latest National Park news, check us out at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
0: This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.